Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, an assist from our southern neighbour. Uh, dictated a national interagency fire centre response. As the U.S. president promises more help, communities right across Canada continue to deal with unpredictable wildfire conditions. Even in cities far away from the blaze, smoke affected air quality is forcing people to stay indoors. So coming up, we'll get an update on the difficult and early start of this country's wildfire season. Also, a seven-year-old framework to stop suicide from happening in this country. So why has it been a failure and why haven't more people been dissuaded from taking their own lives? This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. At last count, there are more than 430 wildfires still burning in Canada. And so far this year, a reported 4.2 million hectares of forest and brush have already burned down. Right across the country, from British Columbia to Labrador, up to Yukon and NWT, it continues to be what federal officials describe as an unprecedented start to the wildfire season. Tonight, we'll get updates from eastern Ontario and Quebec's North Shore, where wildfires have forced evacuations. It begins for us in Greater Madawaska, Ontario. That's about 200 kilometres west of Ottawa, where wildfires have not only forced property owners to stay away, but has also affected air quality in the capital region for days. Well, for more on the situation, we're now reaching out to Lois Thompson, a city councillor for the Township of Greater Madawaska. Councillor, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you. Nice to... Nice that uh, you could have me on. Uh, let's begin with, with the latest situation, because, of course, the last few days, uh, it's not been static. What is the latest word right now on the firefight? The latest word is that it's been held, which means that it's... They don't use the term under control, because it's never under control when it's a fire. So they just say it's been held, and uh, the, the work of the fire bombers, the big ones... The broad brush, broad stroke ones is over. You know, they've dumped all over the whole area. The perimeter has been uh, uh, taken care of as far as I know. And the last I heard what's happening now is the uh, uh, people on the ground, firefighters on the ground, are using GPS to to locate flare-ups or potential flare-ups. And they're communicating to a helicopter that scoops up water. Luckily, it's close to the water. Uh, scoops up about a thousand gallons of, of water and just flushes it down. So um, we, we had some high winds yesterday, and you know, think that it just it started with a spark. Mm-hmm. So um, any any spark could uh, make it come back, but uh, it looks like it's still you know it's it's hopeful it's mm-hmm. hopeful mm-hmm. um you know there are people that go out in boats because uh, most of the fire is close to the shoreline so they go out in boats and and they've been saying on facebook social media that uh, they've seen fires uh that was the last i heard was this morning so you know this could take a while to get out the uh the weather's good Mm-hmm. It's uh, cool, 
cool, uh, threatening rain. I don't want to say threatening, because that's not a threat. It's a good thing. But a, a good solid rain would be nice. Um, and that's basically all I know about uh, the situation. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so as you say, at, at this point, uh, not not yet put out, as they're not using that word, but still working on it on the ground. So talk to us about the practical impact on that, because my understanding is the evacuation order that, that was issued a couple of days ago, not only does it still stand, it's actually been extended now till tomorrow afternoon. Why is that? Well, it, partly because of the terrain, um, I'm guessing, I haven't been in direct contact with the incident commander, um, but I know the terrain there, and some of the lanes are, they go past where the trailer park is, and they wind all the way around a lake to, and with a dead end, like miles. So if, if those people were there and there's a sudden cause to uh, flare up or any reason, it would be really, really hard to get them out of that area safely. So it's really precautionary. Um, you know, if it was a, you know, street with grids, it might not be that way, but it's, it's you know, they could be trapped. Yeah. And, and I, there are a few lanes like that. And I, and I guess that goes to the, the unpredictability about it, because as we talk about wildfires, certainly not just the one in the greater Madawaska uh, area, but also when we talk about the, the wildfires in other parts of this country, the one constant theme seems to be, even if things have gotten better, be prepared because the situation could change very quickly. Is that fair to say with your situation as well? Once again, I'm not the incident commander, but yes, that's impacted us was the smoke from the Northern Ontario or Quebec fires. I'm not sure where it came from, but uh, there were times that the water bombers couldn't take off. I'm not sure where they were coming from, but they couldn't take off because of the, the, the low visibility. So we were lucky they did, were able to take off probably later in the afternoon, later in the day. But, uh, you know, that's a factor I had, wouldn't have thought of. You know, that the uh, that the the other fires can impact this fire, and it's it's really ter terrible situation. Yeah. Well, Councillor, without a doubt, there are many people out there who are anxious to get to their properties to see what type of damage has been done. So we'll be watching very closely as the evacuation order ends tomorrow. But for now, thank you for the time. Okay. Thank you. We have today 13,500 people that have been evacuated. We think that it'll be stable in the next few days. Uh, first in well, that is, of course, the uh, Quebec uh, Premier uh, outlining the many communities still dealing with wildfires. More than 150 are burning right now in Quebec. But some communities have been given a reprieve in the province. That includes Mani Utenam, a community called home by our next guest, a member of Canada's upper chamber. Well, for more on the situation in Quebec, we're now joined by Senator Michelle Odette, who has returned from the region just a couple of mornings ago. Uh, Senator, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Now, as we said, you're back in Ottawa uh, after returning Tuesday morning or leaving the community Tuesday morning. But from your understanding, what's the situation with the communities on the North Shore right now, the St. Lawrence? Because uh, we are beginning to see uh, the return of people to their homes in uh, Manitunam. Uh, does that mean that the worst is over? Uh, the worst might be over uh, from from where I am, but uh, I 
I understand also that from the, uh, the public safety or security in our community, which is Maliutenam, uh, it says every day we're still watching, making sure that you're healthy, the air is okay, and we might have to leave again, but it's it's we don't hear that much anymore. But they, they say to people, don't go back to your cabin or to the territory right now, stay home. Okay. Because we have to be alert and ready. Now, the Innu uh, of Pesimit welcomed into their homes the evacuees from Maniutanam. I'm wondering, how significant was that for you to see? How touching was that for you to witness? Uh, on a very short, short notice to be ready to welcome 2,000 people. But people went to Quebec, our home, and other families who lives outside of Pesimit. And 500 and plus uh, were placed in uh, houses, uh, in the arena also. Uh, and it was like, I couldn't believe that after the announcement, I was there in the community six hours after that, and everything was ready. Everything was ready to make sure that the trauma-informed uh, team will uh, welcome them. They put games and places, playground for children, uh, they had a place also for uh, ceremonies and the priest, uh, bingo, or but three meals per day. Every aspect that we have on a normal life when we're in Maliutanam, we had it in Pesamit with love, with hug, and of course with the laugh also because people were so stressed and afraid of what they might lose with the fire. So for me, I said to them, you're making magic for my community. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And was that heartwarming for you to see? Was it overwhelming emotionally for you to see such an outpouring of spirit? Very, very, because I, I, I guess I had a bias or something like uh, I called the Red Cross uh, before I left. I said, you know, and uh, uh, a, a woman shelter in Montreal, uh, Quebec City, who is uh, working on with indigenous women, I said, I, I'm going to bring a big, big van or something that we can put blankets, water, and so on and so on. And the Red Cross said, you know, Madame Odette, everything is already packed and going to Pesemit. Don't worry. And when I got there, I took pictures. How? And I, I, I didn't know who I was talking to the Red Cross, you know, to this young man. And I said, merci, merci for making sure that our people is safe, warm, and secure and there's food, water, everything is there. Mm -hmm. So the evacuees really are getting a warm welcome and getting what they need on so many levels. But that kindness aside, I, I do wonder how difficult is this moment for you to see, to, to, to witness these wildfires consuming ancestral lands? Uh, we cried. Uh, we still cry. Uh, we... We, we don't understand I, 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 what is the message on that. Sometimes we try to find a purpose. Is it, is it a message or it is a message? And also it reminds us of uh, we're fighting for what's left, you know, and it's going through those flame and smoke. And also it reminds us that it was our natural home, fridge or medicine place, you know, or school, you know, that, that, that land. And uh, later 
we were taking away for residential schools or uh, the youth protection, uh, kids never came back. So when my mom left, uh, many of them felt the same experience where when they were taking away because they're still alive. You know, that era is not over yet. And young generation that was taking away from families under youth protection, they felt the same thing. So Pesemit was very creative to make sure that this is not a residential school. And yes, the land uh, is suffering right now, but she will generate again. She will come back like we are rising us as indigenous people. We're coming back and maybe stronger. So it was that kind of teaching. I was listening a lot uh, during my uh, little moment in Pesemit. Senator Michelle Odette, always good to have you on the program. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. About seven years ago, a federal framework for suicide prevention was put into place so that the taking of one's own life might be prevented. But a Senate committee looking into the framework's effectiveness has just shared a disturbing conclusion. The framework, they say, is failing, the rate of suicides has not improved, and Indigenous people, in particular Inuit men and boys, are still overrepresented in the numbers. Compared to, to women, for example, who are in, in crisis or in trouble, uh, there are more uh, programs that exist for women than men across Canada. And so this is why, in this report, it will be important for the federal government going forward to put a, a gender-based lens on men when we are talking about uh, suicide, because the facts are there, the facts don't lie. Three, three out of every four suicides are committed uh, by men, and so we have to tackle, uh, you know, we have to look at uh, better programs uh, that, that, you know, will be created for the benefit of men going forward. Well, for more, we're now joined in studio by Senator Stan Kutcher of Nova Scotia. He is a member of the committee that looked into the federal framework for suicide prevention. Uh, Senator, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for, for having me join you. Uh, so here we are, this, this framework uh, roughly about seven years old, and the conclusion of your committee is that in that time, it has not proven to work. In fact, this is a, pr a program, a framework that's supposed to prevent suicides from happening. But that's, that is exactly what you're not seeing. So what's the failure here? Well, first of all, let, let me commend government um, for wanting to address this problem, a very pernicious and difficult problem that touches the lives of so many Canadians, wherever they live, from coast to coast to coast. Commend them for wanting to do something about this. But also to recognize that doing something and doing the right thing are often different things. And the framework, as we discovered from our study, was not built around ensuring that the best available evidence for suicide prevention, whether that be public health interventions or clinical interventions, uh, were being actually incorporated into the framework, were being evaluated and distributed widely so that they could be effectively scaled up. Instead, the framework was looking at and promoting interesting concepts, ideas that made people feel good about the, what they were doing, but really not hitting the nub of the issue, not using best available evidence to ensure that what was being done 
was working. Now, this is obviously a huge problem. So, so I'm sure when you make that statement, you're, you're, you have a number of things in mind. But could you just give us one example of a best practice or a best theory that is not incorporated into the current framework? Oh, certainly. Uh, public health measures such as uh, means restriction. So very often suicide uh, is an impulsive act. It is something that people do in the height of a short-lived but very intensive emotional experience. And if they have access to lethal means at that time, uh, they successfully complete suicide. If, however, access to lethal means is restricted, made more difficult, then it's much harder for them to complete the act. And when the impulse has subsided, they are more likely to take control and not complete the act. So one of the things I mentioned today was barriers on bridges. We, the fascinating work out of Toronto, which actually showed if you put barriers on the Bloor Viaduct, mm -hmm. you really decrease the numbers of suicide there. Uh, another issue that we're currently grappling with in Canada to try to get a better understanding of is how can we ensure we have responsible gun ownership m merged with the reality that 70% of all deaths by firearms in Canada are not homicides, they're suicides. And they're predominantly men and they're predominantly from rural regions. So how can we address that at a policy level and understanding level so that we support responsible gun ownership, but at the same time address suicide. So these are difficult challenges. The other thing that the framework didn't do, it didn't at all comment on clinical. Mm -hmm. And the clinical interventions, I was a clinician at one time, they are fundamental. Fundamental, because that's where the rubber hits the road for people who have a mental illness or who are in severe, severe emotional discomfort and distress, they come to a hospital, uh, they didn't address that at all. And, and we know that there are effective ways that are clinical. Now, uh, I'm trying to think back a bit of the background to, to this framework, because certainly a few years ago, and people may have forgotten because of the pandemic, uh, this country was dealing with a number of suicides, uh, particularly amongst First Nations communities, particularly amongst communities in the North, and, and Inuit men and boys in particular. Uh, was the framework rushed? Is that why there's this disconnect? I, I can't answer for how the framework was developed, and I can't answer it was it rushed or not. Uh, Senator Brazo has spoken eloquently about this issue, and I completely agree with him. The highest rates of suicide are in the Inuit population, then in indigenous populations, but there are, there are huge variations between communities with high rates, communities with very low rates. And what we have seen from the framework is that it didn't prioritize where the need was the greatest. And so if we really want to make an impact on decreasing rates of suicide, we need to prioritize those areas where the rates are the highest. Mm -hmm. Because if we can address those and bring those down, they bring everything down. Okay. And, and uh, as Senator Brazo has pointed out, it's the Inuit population, indigenous population, and men. Now, he, he correctly states about 70% of all suicides are men, mm -hmm. um, often because they use more lethal means. Mm -hmm. So we have this conundrum uh, of how do we help men? Uh, how do we decrease access to lethal means? And also, how do we encourage men to reach out for help as opposed to doing the macho thing? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, that may, leads me to... to 
the recommendations. There are 11 recommendations being made in this report. Uh, probably not enough time to go through each and every one, but could you maybe talk to us about the spirit of these recommendations and perhaps broad stroke what, what you hope comes out of it? Certainly, and thanks for that question. I think overall the committee felt that we had to ensure that the prevention framework was first and foremost grounded in the best available evidence. So that whatever else it does, it must ensure that we are putting into place the things that we know work. Secondly, that we are abstaining from using and investing in things that we know don't work. And An thirdly, just well, sure, uh, programs at the community level to increase awareness about suicide. They don't work to prevent suicide. Um, and if we don't know if something works, then we, should, we must invest in things that look promising and do the proper research, whether it's at the public health or clinical levels, to ensure that we know if it works. And if it works, scale it up. Mm -hmm. uh, let the provinces and territories, which are also part of, of, of addressing this issue, Indigenous, First Nations, nation to nation, they're, they're, they have to have a say and a leadership in this. Uh, let's find out together what works and then let's scale it up. Okay, I have less than a minute here, but I do want to ask you, because when, when you talk about this, this framework not working in this report, you note the fact that the suicide rate has, has relatively been stable across 20 years. There's been no improvement in getting that number down. Have you talked to, to members of the Trudeau government? Have you talked to them about your findings, your committee work? I'm wondering what kind of initial reaction you're getting. Certainly, good question. Uh, actually, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, which is the first time we've had a minister in this country on that particular file, uh, was a witness at the committee. Uh, she told us that she would like to see a report that was based on best available evidence. She, uh, is, she committed to the committee that uh, they would be reviewing the suicide prevention framework at PHAC and that they would use our report to help them in their review. So I was very, very pleased by, by that kind of response from the minister. We will be sending the report to the minister and asking her for her response to the report. And we were also trying to meet with the minister so we could have a one-on-one -on -one conversation about uh, where, where Canada can go as a federal government to actually address this vexatious and pernicious challenge. Well, we will update the story as more uh, information becomes available. Uh, Senator Kutcher, really appreciate the time. Thank you. And thank you very much. Well, a look at the top stories making headlines tonight. We cried. Uh, we still cry. Uh, we, we, we don't understand. I, 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 what is the message on that? Sometimes we try to find a purpose. Is it is it a message or it is a message? That is Senator Michelle Odette on the wildfires affecting Innu communities on Quebec's North Shore. About 150 wildfires are active in Quebec and more than 13,000 people remain evacuated. Across Canada, more than 400 fires are burning and more than half remain out of control. And after talking with the Prime Minister last night, the U.S. President is ready to send more help north. I spoke yesterday with Prime Minister Trudeau, and uh, I've decided uh, I dictated a national interagency fire centre response to Canada's request for additional firefighters and the fire suppression assets such as air tankers. 
We already have 600 American firefighters on the ground and been there for a while in Canada, including hotshots and the smoke jumper crews. Here in Ottawa, the Bloc Québécois is tying wildfires and other disasters to climate change. The party's Opposition Day motion calling for the federal government to take more action, give more support to affected communities, and stop investing in oil. Nobody says, nobody says that we have to stop using fossil fuels tomorrow morning. That's the end of it. The world stops turning. We say that we have to get out of there more and more rapidly. If we would have started this process 15 years ago, we would, we would be 15 years into the process. The budget implementation bill is heading for the Senate after passing the House of Commons and after being delayed by conservative tactics. That included the opposition leader on his feet for several hours last night, opposing Bill C-47. Pierre Poliev now wants the House to delay its summer break and rewrite the budget, pointing to an IMF warning that Canada is at high risk for a mortgage crisis. The Conservatives are prepared to work all summer long to rewrite a budget balances budgets in order to bring down inflation and interest rates and that cancels all increases in taxes because Canadians cannot afford to pay more. Mr. Trudeau, people's homes, their livelihoods are more important than your political posturing. They're more important than your summer vacation. So join with us. Put partisanship aside. Let's cancel the vacations. Next week in the House of Commons, MPs will debate a government plan to make hybrid sittings a permanent feature. Virtual attendance and voting has been in place since the first wave of COVID-19, but only as temporary measures. Conservatives and the Bloc say hybrid sittings have caused issues with translation and with keeping the government accountable, but the government House leader says it will encourage more Canadians to enter politics and help MPs with health challenges. Mark Holland pointing to Liberal MP Arnold Chan, who died of cancer in 2017. Watching him in the lobby behind Parliament, wheezing, uh, doubled over in pain so that he could do his job, uh, was one of the most painful things that I've ever lived through. And one of the things I said to myself is that if I ever had an opportunity to ensure that that never happened again, that I would. And what we now have with hybrid is we have circumstances, and I won't talk about them because it's inappropriate for me to talk about individual health circumstances, but where a member falls ill, where they can continue to do their job. This is not just a job. This is a calling. This is a passion for the people who do it. And I think that what you've seen um, since hybrid has been introduced is people use those responsibilities judiciously. And finally, as Pride season continues, the Pride flag is now flying over Parliament Hill with an assist from the Prime Minister who is attacking recent efforts to remove books on gender and sexuality from Canadian schools. This is especially cruel towards kids who struggle with questions about their own identities. Kids who don't have a loving environment where they can ask questions and get support. In too many places, it's kids who have to fight to have the pride flag raised. And in some places, it's been denied. Well, to those kids, I'm here to say that even though the flag may not fly at your school, know that it proudly flies here in your seat of government.
And a programming note, over the weekend we will speak with Tourism Minister Randy Boissonneau about Pride celebrations this summer and the government's concerns over their safety. But for tonight, that is our program on this Thursday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow right here on Primetime Politics. But for now, stay with us. Esther Bégin avec l'Essentiel is up next.